You're listening to the Empowering Lives Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Psychology at Help University, the University of Achievers. We'll be bringing you conversations with renowned psychologists and other health professionals that discuss a wide range of topics on mental health, psychology, and well-being. The Empowering Lives Podcast comes to you from the biggest psychology department in the whole of Malaysia. As we talk about the issues that matter to you most, stay tuned to this global podcast as we empower you to take away valuable insights and lessons that can improve your emotional health and well-being today. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Empowering Lives podcast, wherever you're listening from. My name is Sandy Clark, and today I'm joined by Dr. Gerard Lewis, who'll be sharing his insights from 30 years of experience as a counseling psychologist on how we can manage feelings of stress and anxiety whenever we are feeling overwhelmed. Dr. Gerard Lewis is the Dean for the Faculty of Behavioral Sciences, Education and Languages here at HELP University. Uh, So welcome to the show, Dr. Gerard. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, uh, Sandy. Oh, it's our pleasure. And um, it's, it's interesting to have looked at your background with all the um, your, your leadership roles and uh, services to uh, counselling. And I'm wondering, what was it in the first place that attracted you to study and establish a career in counselling? Oh, wow. That's a way back kind of question. <laughs> <laughs> um, Many years ago, I, 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 when I was a young man, still in school, um, I had a desire to, to serve God in a certain way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, so when I went for you know, my religious training, I, 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 my, I come from a family of teachers. So mm-hmm. both my parents were teachers, my, my sister's a teacher. So it's family script. And, um, and so I, the training was really to, to, to be mm-hmm. a, a teacher. But uh, as part of the training, one of my mentors, um, you know, uh, had gone to study counseling in the Philippines and, and you know, he, he read a lot of personal development courses uh, for us in our preparation to be holy religious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was a very insightful two years uh, that I had about my life and, and uh, because it, it affected me, impacted on me in such a positive way. And, uh, that's one of the things I, 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 I realized that uh, yeah, maybe other than just teaching, maybe that's another thing that I could also do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I did after my early years of teaching uh, in the classroom, after my training as a teacher. I, I made the switch um, eventually to becoming a, a counsellor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was that was the reason why, because I, I also realized that people were coming to me for a lot of things and I didn't really know how to help them in a, a professional way. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, that, that certainly opened the doors to, to that uh, discovery of the world of counseling. And when I was uh, reading through your list of roles, uh, it was quite exhausting just to go through the, the many kind of leadership <laughs> roles that you've had in your lifetime. And yeah. um, I read that, and this might be something that uh, some people don't know about you, that at the age of 33, you were the youngest uh, school principal in West Malaysia. Mm-hmm. So that must have been quite a lot of responsibility from such an, oh, an early age. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. I'm just wondering, throughout your, your time in leadership roles from that age of 33, quite a young age, how do you manage the demands on a daily basis um, from leadership roles? And how do you remain calm and composed when you're dealing with all of that? 
Well, I, I don't always remain calm and composed. I have to be <laughs> honest about that. <laughs> I, I am human and like any other human being, there are moments when, you know, there are moments of little explosions here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are moments of frustration, certainly irritability. But for the most part, yeah, um, you know, I, I've always tried to understand where the other person is coming from. I guess it's part of the training uh, that you have as a counsellor. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, it's it's learning how to manage conflicts, learning how to manage differences of opinions, learning how to manage that things won't always be as perfect as you want them to be, and and that's I think an uh, important realization to have. Uh, if you believe that people um, are generally good, they're not bad people, they're not lazy people, they they're not out there uh, to get you. It's not a dog eat dog world. That, that comes from certain perspectives, certain mm-hmm. set of values that you have, a certain worldview of the world that you choose to have to see the positives, to see the the better sides, better angels in, in each one of us. Mm-hmm. Then you realize um, that when you are able to communicate that somehow and give people the benefit of the doubt, even if, for example, they may not have been as honest with you, mm-hmm. you find that they do feel bad, uh, that they don't want to take advantage because you believe in them. And even if they didn't before that, they start to believe in themselves because they don't want to let you down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that certainly is something to be said about managing people, managing relationships, managing, you know, the, the differences, conflicts that we have mm-hmm. and, and understanding and knowing how to do that certainly helps uh, put perspective to the kinds of work uh, relationships I have, whether it's parents, whether it's it's my fellow colleagues or whether it's people in management that I meet with, uh, whether mm-hmm. it's, it's students themselves, uh, you know, that, that come to see you for, for help and, and assistance here. So that certainly is, is something that I've realized is important to have. But I, I have to say also, I think what keeps me sane, what has helped tremendously in this, and, I, and I've said this very often to the people I work with, I, I'm really, very really blessed to have a fantastic team. So even though I manage, in effect, actually about 11 different departments and units in, in the health group, whether it's academic departments or, or international schools or training mm-hmm. units or... or or service centers. Each one of the, the schools, each one of the departments and, and the centers, uh, the leadership there has really been exemplary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they have been a tremendous support. The, the people I work with closely every day in my, uh, at, at, the, at the group level, at the, the organizational level, a small team of about four or five people whom I meet every day and talk to every day. Uh, and we manage, you know, three, or three international schools uh, in, in the whole country, uh, they've been a tremendous, tremendous part to me. And, and, and I realized that, you know, we never travel uh, this world alone. We never do the things we do or succeed in whatever we do by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and just acknowledging that, just recognizing that, um, you know, you, you don't have to carry the burden and, and of responsibility all by yourself. And, and you know, when you empower people to, to make decisions and you trust them in certain decisions, you find that that certainly helps you manage uh, your own resources uh, to the best of your ability. Yeah. I like the point that you raised when you said, you know, I, I'm only human and, uh, you know, I, there are sometimes feelings of frustration and agitation. And I suppose uh, all of that is helped, like you say, by having good people around you um, to make life a little bit easier. Um, for the people who perhaps find themselves feeling overwhelmed, particularly in times of uncertainty, when they have to tend to their work and home life, often under the, the same roof if, they, if they're working from home. 
where does that feeling of overwhelm come from? Is it feelings of inadequacy or is it a feeling of pressure to get things done right? For, for people who do feel um, like they're taking too much on or it's, it's, it's a burden, where do those feelings stem from? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly feelings of inadequacy does impact on my need to prove myself constantly. And, and that, you know... Uh, can be a vicious cycle that is difficult to break out of uh, because we'll never be able to please everybody, mm-hmm. right? And, and so when when there are you know what what we call we would call from a cognitive perspective you know when we when we have very rigid perfectionist tendencies uh, when we are very rigid in in terms of our decision making mm. uh, when we have an absolute need for to control and uh, for control um, because it it has to be yeah, my way or the highway, then, you know, when, when, when you realize in life soon enough that there's no way you can have absolute control, everything mm-hmm. and anything. And even if you can control systems, processes, technical things that you, you demand perfection because any margin of errors can, can be quite costly, etc. It's one thing to control systems and, and, and processes and technical details of a, of a structure. It's mm-hmm. quite another thing to control uh, human beings mm-hmm. uh, and, and you, you realize you cannot soon enough you realize you can't so whatever decisions that you make uh, whether at home or in the workplace you have to be prepared for the intended and unintended consequences of those decisions mm-hmm. but if you if you constantly demand of yourself and of people that everybody has to appreciate that decision everybody has to support that decision everyone must must like you because of that decision Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and only to realize soon enough that no, yeah, maybe 70% might support you, 10% may not have any feelings, but 20% will always, no matter what you do, them if you do them, if you don't, <laughs> uh, they, they will not support you, no matter what, how best intentions you are. And, 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 and they will tell you, they will, they will start imputing motives to why you made that decision. They will think that you are a horrible person, bad person, and so forth. You just have to learn to live with it. Uh, and, and, but if you don't have an adequate sense of self and adequate sense of belief and, and honesty with yourself, uh, that certainly compounds this overwhelming sense of, of sometimes just being drowned by the need uh, for acceptance, for love, for recognition. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so that does not help. So, and, and the base of all of that is, is the need for, for absolute control and perfection. Mm-hmm. And, uh, sitting on that, on that base also alongside that is uh, the feelings of inadequacy as a, a poor sense of self. It's yeah. interesting. It's interesting that you mention about, uh, you know, sometimes it can be e- easy enough to control technology and, and systems, but even for example, recording a podcast, sometimes you'll get a glitch here and there that you can't mm. do anything mm. about. So you kind mm. of have to, you know, let that go and, and, and hope that what you're offering is a valuable, is of mm. value to mm. people. Um, and I think that um, for, for people themselves in relationships to others, an old mentor of mine used to say that uh, some people will think that you're the, epitome of kindness and other people mm-hmm. will think that you're everything that's wrong with the world so it's this idea <laughs> that it depends on people's perspective yes. you can be however you Absolutely. like but you're never yes. going to match up to everyone's expectations um yes. so on yes. that point uh, when people uh, or when things do start to get on top of people when they're juggling work and family life and other commitments what can they do or what uh, should they try to understand in order to manage those emotions such as frustration anxiety or agitation when they do arise yeah, I, I think it's important, uh, you know, when you're dealing with emotions, to know where emotions come from in the first place. Uh, our emotions don't just happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
uh, and as a as a cognitive therapist, uh, the the model of uh, understanding emotions uh, really comes from the understanding that our emotions, the starting point of all our emotions, are in our cognitions or in our thoughts and our thinking processes. Mm-hmm. So what we think. Uh, mediates between how we feel and, and the behaviors that will then manifest itself. So feelings of anxiety, feelings of hesitation come from specific uh, streams of thought that happen in our minds first. Yeah? So mm-hmm. for example, anxiety. Anxiety is basically a, a fear, that the, the threat uh, that I perceive a threat to my physical or psychological self, either to me or to, to those who are around me who are significant in my lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I when I get a sense that oh this this I'm not sure whether I can deal with this threat, then of course the feelings of anxiety, the feelings of fear will happen. That's a very normal human response. What's important for us is not that we are feeling anxious or fearful. It's it's whether those feelings of anxiety or fear or worry overwhelm us. That then it occupies a lot of my waking hours. Uh, mm-hmm. That's when I, I, I have to be careful because then it might be that I've already developed uh, emotions that are not so healthy or that might not be considered normal anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because the intensity and durations of, of those feelings are some things uh, that, that not normal people will not feel. So if, if I'm already at that stage, then I, I have to seriously consider. Uh, uh, speaking to a professional to help me process what's going on with me. So, mm-hmm. so number one, it's it's understanding my thought patterns, understanding what is it about the situation that I'm fearful about. Yeah. So, asking myself those sort of questions, my beliefs about the situation, the meaning I put into those situations. Those are all important questions that if you came to me as as a counselor and talked to me about this, those would be the kind of questions I will ask you. What is the what is your understanding of the situation? What's the meaning that you give to the situation? Mm. Are you catastrophizing the situation? Are, are you do you have a set of beliefs where you say, you know, I can't stand it anymore? Um the low frustration tolerance. Uh, do you have a belief about yourself uh, in relation to that situation? Uh, that is making it more uh, insurmountable than it actually really is. So processing the origins of my thinking process then helps me become uh, more aware of why I respond the way I do, I feel the way I do. Yeah, because our emotions then link with our behaviors uh, and, and it will move us to action. So whatever emotions we have will inevitably lead us to act in a certain way. And mm-hmm. so if we don't understand to manage first the thought processes that come in before we get into what we call an amygdala hijacking or uh, emotional uh, paralysis. Mm-hmm. Then because emotions happen so fast and sometimes the intensity is so great that we can do damage to the people around us and to ourselves by hitting out at them, by saying things that we cannot, you know, they say once a bullet leaves the gun, you can't retract the bullet anymore. Mm-hmm. The damage yeah. will be there. Right. So, so it is. It is just being aware of our thinking processes and understanding where that comes from. Uh, that then will help us uh, manage those those emotions a bit better. Mm. Uh, another thing that also impacts on, on this, of course, is um, you know to manage our emotions. We also need to, to manage what we call the mind spirit body connection. Right. So I, I said that the mind was an important starting point, but also our our bodies respond whenever there are emotional re- reactions. And sometimes some of us indulge in, in habits, physical habits and, and behaviors uh, that can do also damage mm-hmm. and uh, that can induce certain kinds of emotions. So when we are involved, with, uh, engaged in addictive substances, for example, a lot of alcohol during this time of restricted movement, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that will have an impact on our bodies because it will disrupt you know, uh, the, the, the hormonal balance within us. So any kind of addictive behaviors will impact on the health of our bodies and, and therefore reduce our ability to manage emotions as they surface. Mm. I think when you mentioned uh, about that idea of taking a step back to understand where your thoughts are coming from, where your emotions are coming from. That's a step that we often uh, miss out because I think what happens is we go into problem solving mode. Um, Mm -hmm. When when we come up against something unpleasant, we want to fix it straight away. And it's almost as if, you know, if we have a broken table or chair, we can take steps to fix that in a practical sense. But quite often that Mm -hmm. doesn't work with the mind that that you do need to take a step back and think about, okay, what am I feeling? Why do I think it's there? What's my understanding of the situation? Am I Mm. perhaps exaggerating or embellishing the situation? Am I reacting Mm. from a place of anger or emotion rather than Mm. a place of, you know, slight calm, you know, not to act rationally in that sense? So when when you you think about Anger, on the other hand, so when I said anxiety, it's the meaning I put an external event that's happening to me. I perceive it as a threat to mm-hmm. my emotional, uh, physical or psychological well-being. When you think of anger, on the other hand, the starting point of anger, the meaning I give to an event outside of me that elicits these feelings of anger is that when I perceive you as trampling on values, on something that I, I think, I believe is important to me, Mm-hmm. And what is important to me is what we call value, something that is, is of value to me. When you trample on this, then of course I get angry. So when I perceive, I, if I value respect, for example, and, and I, the way you behave, when I look at your behavior, I give a meaning to that behavior and I say, you are trampling on my value of respect. Mm-hmm. And then of course the natural response is, I will feel angry. If I value honesty and my child is dishonest, then I will feel angry because you are not res- you don't respect this value in me right mm. so if i can understand this stream of thought then instead of rushing out to start imputing motives and labeling you as a uh, insensitive person etc my starting point will be what about respect that i that is so important to me or honesty that is so important to me did the person actually trample on this is what the person saying or what the person is doing really a violation of my right my my values was that his intention to trample on my value? Mm-hmm. So the focus then becomes a focus on those values rather than the focus on you as a bad person, you as a thoughtless person, you as a dishonest person, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Because when I do that, then what happens uh, in the relationship? I made it personal. I made the conflict personal, right? So, mm-hmm. so then it, it, it prevents me, it colors my mind from wanting to engage the person. So when you, when you think about it, a lot of, these feelings that we have, when you think about the kinds of conflicts that we have, that oftentimes go to contributing 70, 80% of the, our day, you know, mm-hmm. when we are at work uh, and the feelings that we have often come from the people around us, you know, that add to the frustration of us already not being able to do the things that, that we need to do. Uh, but when you look at the conflict, and if you don't know how to manage those uh, conflicts well, they just exacerbate or they just add on mm-hmm. uh, to those emotions that we have, you know. And when you mentioned that sort of dynamic of managing yourself and, and, and managing your interaction with others, I presume that in the years of your experience as a counsellor, educator and leader, you've encountered quite a few difficult challenges along the way. Mm. Um, how do you personally approach challenging times and situations or conflicts um, when they arise? How do you manage those areas of, of conflict and, and challenge? 
my first default if it's a, a situation that's really really very challenging and before I, I, I face the situation my first default interestingly is enough I, I realize uh, is uh, I turn to, to spiritual matters mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe that's part of my upbringing uh, my, my, my religious upbringing uh, maybe also it's because I, I, I believe that I'm in this world for a reason Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I and I create a certain meaning in my life about my existence, and, and so whatever then that happens uh, in the course of my life, uh, I, I believe it happens for a reason and for a purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so my my default is really to go back and and you know to to remind myself about certain things, to to ask for divine intervention if necessary, to to help keep me calm, keep me open, keep me. Uh, help me to see things uh, is in as objective a way as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, then, then when I have to then face uh, whatever situations I have to face, um, uh, it's about taking it um, one problem at a time, trying to make sense of the problem or difficulty, and, and trying to organize it in my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, prioritize it then, which are the most critical ones that we have to get through at this point. Uh, so, so organizing the problem so that you don't see the problem as just one tsunami. But yeah. you know, breaking it down, breaking down the tsunami to different different parts, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then once you are able to organize the problem, uh, then you deal with the problem one at a time, mm-hmm. and and then when you realize you only have X amount of resources uh, available within you, uh, as I mentioned from the start, then you have to look at also the people that you bring with you to help you resolve the problem and empower certain people to make decisions about certain kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. Because if not, if we want to deal with every single problem that you have and you just don't have the time because you're managing such a large organization, um, that simply means that you're not very efficient in the things you're not, you don't trust your people enough. So if you mm-hmm. hire them, you better trust them. And therefore, <laughs> if you trust them, you empower them with decision making. Yeah. As, as long as you, you know you hold them accountable to certain kinds of decisions, you, you tell them, okay, report to me, give me an update about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you might give your input into you know, some direction that you want. Uh, but trust that people will do it in, in their own way. And, and you know, they might always, it, it, may, it may not always be the kind of uh, process that you would personally do. But as long as mm-hmm. the outcome is you both agree that you want to see, uh, that's all that matters. It, it, it doesn't have to be exactly the way that you want to. And that's part of what I mean by, you know, having a, a, a flexible, adaptable uh, outlook. Huh? So it's important to have healthy kind of thoughts that help you manage difficult situations. Mm-hmm. And, and as I said, you have a very rigid perfectionist outlook to doing things or, or to life itself. Uh, and it's high need for control. You will find yourself a lot more difficult to deal with, with, mm-hmm. with uh, 10 million problems that come uh, your way every day when you're yeah. in a certain position of leadership. And I think that's a, that's a valuable insight uh, you shared when you said, um, you know, it's not about the process as such, because everyone will have a different perspective of how things should mm. be done. Um, but as long mm. as the, the, the outcome is there, um, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter which road you take as long as you reach the destination sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and to give people that, that sort of autonomy to go about their own way to, to do things uh, from, how, from their own perspective. And I mean, you've, mm-hmm. you've spoken a lot about perspective in, in this episode. And I, I think it's one of those things that people, when they develop perspective, uh, it becomes quite valuable in terms of allowing them to manage their own emotions and re- manage their own responses and reactions to situations that are outside of themselves. Um, can you share some suggestions or practical advice 
on how people can develop a sense of perspective, um, you know, to avoid getting caught up in their emotions um, and to develop that calm that can help them deal with challenges when they arise. Because I think one of the questions that people might have when they're listening to you speak is, okay, you have over 30 years of experience in, in cultivating this mindset that you have. But if I'm at a place where, you know, I do react quickly, I do react um, rashly, what can I start to do now that helps me to overcome those impulse uh, reactions? The word is be careful about catastrophizing. And let me, let me explain that a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So by, by giving some examples of people who do face failure, who have faced failure in their lives um, of, of many, many different situations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and how that then eventually links to, you know, purpose, meaning in our lives and so forth. So a lot of what I've said actually very much links one uh, to another. Uh, so think, think about Thomas Edison. Thomas mm -hmm. Edison, of course, you know, the, the, the famous inventor of the light bulb. And when often people ask him, you know, I think he, he tried it about 998 times or something. Uh, why, why, why did you try so many times? You know, most people after 15 times, they would have given up, mm -hmm. right? Uh, most people have said, oh, I'm a failure. I've tried so many times, you know, no matter how hard I tried, there's no point. Thomas Edison actually tried uh, every single uh, uh, material that he could lay his hands on, whether it's, it's metal, whether it, it, was, it was something that was in nature from plants, from the bark of trees, from mm -hmm. wines, every possible thing. And, and, you know, when you ask him, why did you continue? He says, well, don't you see those moments as failures? He says, no, I, I don't. I just see them as you know, 10,000 ways of what doesn't work, mm -hmm. right? Uh, 10,000 ways of what doesn't work. So I, I have to keep looking until I figure out the way that works. And, mm -hmm. and you know, when you, when you think about people like Addison, you think like uh, people like Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln, if you, if you study his life, um, went through one failure after another, mm -hmm. first as a businessman, as a politician, he stood for Senate, he lost, he stood for VP, he lost. Uh, he, he lost his business. Eventually, he lost his even his wife. He died earlier on. Quite a tragic life story. Mm -hmm. uh, most people would have just given up when they're just overwhelmed. If you're a politician, you're a business person. Most people would have given up and and gone into a state of desperation and and and, and despair and and depression. But Lincoln today is known as the 16th president and one of the greatest presidents of the United States, if not the world, that ended mm -hmm. slavery in America. Uh, you look at Nelson Mandela. Right, 28 years fighting for equality against apartheid, 18 of those years spent on Robben Island uh, and, you know, instead of in, in, in solitary confinement. And we mm -hmm. are social beings and nothing damages the brain more than um, not being able to connect or relate with other people. Uh, mm -hmm. But how did Mandela, who then after he was released from prison, but even in prison was such a powerful force uh, in his country and, and how he was able to bring about reconciliation Mm -hmm. um, against the people who, who took away 28 years of his freedom. Um, you know, when he was in isolation, uh, Roman Island became the University of Roman Island. He used that time to prepare himself for the time ahead, uh, mm -hmm. always not giving up hope. I mean, history is abound with stories of personalities like this. These are people who, who motivate us, encourage us, and inspire us. Huh? To, to realize that, yes, no matter how bad things are, as long as you have life, it is not as bad as you think it is. It is not the end of the world yet. As long mm -hmm. as you still have life, there is hope. And it is a sense of hopefulness more than anything else 
that then helps you, prevents you from getting into the temptation of catastrophizing whatever is happening to you now, no matter how bad things are. So, you know, the pandemic is, is unprecedented in the world. Global shutdown, every single nation possibly in the world is affected. Mm-hmm. Millions, if not uh, billions, will, will be affected. Economically, countries, so many companies are, are folding, going under. A month ago, they were all thriving within a, a short span of, of four weeks, to six weeks, some already in, in receivership. Mm-hmm. Uh, Virgin Australia is a classic case in point. You know, so the airline industry is in, in, in terrible shape. This morning, I was with a group of doctor, lawyers from Malaysia, Singapore, and Hong Kong doing a webinar, and they were sharing their experiences. They have the same concerns mm-hmm. about their businesses, especially the, the young lawyers here, yeah, that they will be laid out, that they will have salary cuts. Every, it, it's a reality, no matter how bad things are, right, that things are really, really bad. But when you think about this pandemic, and it's a horrible situation to be in, historical lows in the uh, never-before-negative oil price, Mm-hmm. But think back, 2004, Asian tsunami, the number of deaths still exceeds the number of deaths now from COVID-19. 200 over 1,000 people died mm-hmm. uh, during that time. The destruction in Aceh and in many of the commun- coastal communities in Southeast Asia and South Asia, every year... Uh, you've got about 20 super typhoons that go through the Philippines and every year it, it leaves a trail of destruction. People don't realize uh, what actually happens in a country like the Philippines. They are mm-hmm. part of the, uh, not only sometimes do they have the super typhoons, about 20 on the average, they have volcanoes, they have earthquakes. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a country filled with disaster. 8,000 beautiful islands, wonderful islands, big population, etc. But the amount of devastation. And it mm-hmm. takes a long time to build, rebuild infrastructure. So things are bad for us. Economy is bad. But the infrastructure is still there compared to in the natural disasters. But in all of those communities that have faced devastation, physical infrastructural devastation, they all bounce back. Mm-hmm. That's the concept of resilience. Yeah, that's the concept of resilience. And resilience happens. The, the, the wonderful thing about human beings is that we have the ability. It's a natural ability to adapt to bounce back from adversity. And, and it's, it's not a personality trait because all of us have this. But we do know that even if you're resilient, it's, it's something that you have to spend time developing, working mm-hmm. to, to become more resilient. Resilient people also will experience pain, difficulty, distress, but they survive mm-hmm. those difficult situations because, number one, they know how to manage the thoughts when they go through bad situations so that they don't get into that emotional hijacking I was telling you about. Mm. They know how to manage their, their physical health. They know how to reach out to people to, to look for help because, uh, you know, despite the fact that many people try to uh, do the best they can, um, they still can't overcome the, the adversity. And that's when we start reaching out to others. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, 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 you know, when you think about it now, things are bad, but we still have a roof over our head. We still have food meals on our table. Uh, last night, before going to bed, my wife and I were, were discussing ways of how we can reach out to people uh-huh. who actually have not had any meals for the last three days mm. because she is in contact with people from a certain community uh, who, who have not, who have lost their jobs. They were, they were, they are overseas workers that are here. They were day-to-day paid um, uh, laborers or workers, and many of them served in the in, in the service industry. 
mm-hmm. um, they don't have any more jobs because many of the restaurants are closed, right? Mm-hmm. And and they, they live together in, in in a rented house. They don't have money to pay rent. Thankfully, uh, the landlord is not demanding uh, rent from them, but giving them time until they are able to find their feet. Mm-hmm. But they've run out of money because all the money that they earned, the little that they earned previously, they used to be sending it back to their to their home countries. Mm-hmm. They've not had food. So no matter how bad things are for us, we realize that a lot of people are in, in the worst of situation that we are. So what then helps us put perspective to our lives is that maybe we should reach out also not to them because we are all in this together. As I said, this is a global pandemic. Every one of us is affected by decisions mm-hmm. that government make. Uh, about the, the policies to, to keep uh, social distancing and so forth. So if we recognize this, as long as we have life, we have hope. And no matter how bad things are for us, things could be worse. And mm-hmm. that then prevents us from getting into into this this spiral of desperation, spiral of, of, of depression. And, and, you know, start reaching out to people, then we stop focusing uh, becoming so self-absorbed in our own pain. I think many spiritual traditions talk about this, you know, when you can reach out to other people, mm-hmm. um, you, know, you heal yourself through that process also. And, and, and you find new meaning in the things that you do. Yeah, because people then will, will give back to you as you're giving to them and give you the support that you need when you give other people the support that they need. That's that's part and parcel of, of you know, when you look at any literature on resilience. So one of the key components of that uh, process of building resilience is to build relationships uh, in this time. So, so just, just understanding some of these basic psychological principles of relationship, of healthy thinking, finding meaning in your life, fostering wellness in, 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 your, uh, in, in your mind, body, spirit connections, and reaching out for help when you need that help. Those are the key components of becoming resilient, helping us to be able to bounce back through moments of adversity. And the, the, the point you made about uh, those pro-social behaviors where um, if we're feeling anxious or stressed, one of the best ways to overcome that is to reach mm-hmm. out and to help other people. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, wrapping up the episode, if you have any advice for listeners in terms of what they could do to support others, whether it be people in need of um, financial help or indeed family or friends who might be feeling uh, overwhelmed or stressed, what can we do to help others in a way that might help to alleviate our own anxiety and sense of helplessness if that's there? So what we can do if we don't have the money is to give time. What we can do if we don't have the money is to put in the our effort volunteer. What we can do to build relationships is to respect the space of the people I'm sharing uh, that my home with. Uh, what I can do that's free, that's absolutely free, is to learn how to listen. <laughs> mm. um, all of those are basic fundamentals you know, of, of building relationships and reaching out to other people. And it takes effort. It takes effort. It helps me, on the other hand, move away from just focusing just on my own pain but also then reach out to the to help other people as i said you know when, when we are able to do that we we are doing ourselves a great service mm-hmm. because that kind of reaching out helps us in in many many ways that are beyond our own understanding yeah mm-hmm. because of that sense of connectedness that that we will feel with other people and the appreciation the sense of satisfaction i know people who have uh, you know gone out of the way I mean you just have to look at the healthcare workers who are at the front line of this Uh, many of them Mm -hmm. could have chosen to stay at home but they have not they have chosen to be at the front line directly 
um, being, you know, trying, hoping that they will not bring the virus home or they will not themselves be infected because this this virus will kill you, can kill you uh, if, if you are just one of those people in the high risk group, the 5%. Mm-hmm. But yet what gives them, what makes them do this? Because the sense of dedication, the sense of, um, that's why I, I joined the medical profession to help, uh, to give life, to help those who are in pain. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just learning from them. They inspire us to, to recognize that if they are willing to take that kind of risk, if they are willing to do the things that they do and the families that support these people. Uh, that's an, another important part that we forget to often talk about also the families that support our doctors, our nurses, our healthcare workers, uh, the people who are in our supermarkets, still serving us at, at the counters, still making sure that there's food on the, on the shelves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they go back home. They go back home. They are exposed. They go back home. Um, they, these are people that we can learn from because they don't just think about themselves, they think about other people. And when we can do that and build the relationships and support one another, that's what will help us through any difficult period, face any challenges that we have. Because we know that we are, we are in this together. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a great point to end on, especially to highlight the, the efforts by the, the frontliners and the, the key workers who are out there, whether they be working in hospitals or care homes, pharmacies and supermarkets, uh, they're all doing a, a marvellous job uh, to help keep things going. And I think that, um, you know, they're often undervalued and um, we're starting to see through this crisis just how important uh, their efforts are in, in helping to keep things moving along uh, during these difficult times. So thank you for your, your time, Dr. Gerard. And um, I think that you've, you've shared an awful lot of helpful insights for people who can uh, hopefully apply some of those points to their lives to help them to sort of manage their emotions um, during times of, of difficulty and hardship. So thanks for your thanks for your time, Dr. Gerard. Thank you also, Sandy, for, for taking your time to do this. You know, certainly, I, I think it's an initiative that will help and reach out to a lot of people. Thank you so much also. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this week's episode of Empowering Lives. Be sure to check out our previous episodes from Series 1 and this second series, which are all available on Spotify and Anchor.fm. Till next time, be well, take care and stay safe. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Empowering Lives podcast, brought to you by the Department of Psychology at HELP University, Malaysia, the University of Achievers. For more information about HELP University, visit www.help.edu.my and learn about our world-class programs and mental health services. Thank you for listening. And remember, together we can empower each other to build rich and meaningful lives driven by purpose, vision, and values.